nothing. Bring only your determination to serve and your willingness to be free. Don't wait for the bread to rise. Take nourishment for the journey, but eat standing. Be ready to move at a moment's notice. Do not hesitate to leave your old ways behind. Fear, silence, submission. Only surrender to the need of the time, to love justice and to walk humbly with your God. Begin quickly before you have time to sink back into your old slavery. Set out in the dark. I will send fire to warm you, and I will send fire to encourage you. I will be with you in the fire, and I will be with you in the cloud. I will give you dreams in the desert to guide you safely home to that place you have not yet seen. I am sending you into the wilderness to make a new way and to learn my ways more deeply. Some of you will be so changed by weathers and wanderings that even your closest friends will have to learn your features as though for the first time. Some of you will not change at all. Some will be abandoned by your dearest loves and misunderstood by those who have known you since birth and feel abandoned by you. Some will find new friendships in unlikely faces and old friends as faithful and true as the pillar of God's flame. Sing songs as you go and hold close together. You may at times grow confused and lose your way, so touch each other and keep telling the stories. Make maps as you go. Remember the way back from before you were born. So you will be only the first of many waves of deliverance on these desert seas. It is the first of many blessings, your paschaltude. Remain true to this mystery. Pass on the whole story. Do not go back. I am with you, and I am waiting for you. The enigma we answer by living. Einstein didn't speak as a child, waiting till a sentence formed and emerged full-blown from his head. I do the thing, he later wrote, which nature drives me to do. Does a fish know the water in which he swims? This came up in conversation with a man I met by chance friend of a friend of a friend, who passed through town carrying three specimen boxes of insects he'd collected in the Grand Canyon. One for mosquitoes, one for honeybees, one for butterflies and skippers, each lined up in a row, pinned and labeled. Tiny morphologic differences revealing how adaptation happened over time. The deeper down he hiked, the older the rock, and the younger the strategy for living in that place. And in my dining room, the universe found its way into this man, bent on cataloging each innovation, though he knows it will all disappear. The labels, the skippers, the canyon. We agreed then, the old friends and the new, that it's wrong to think people are a thing apart from the whole, as if we'd sprung from an idea out in space. Rather than emerging from the sequence larval 
mess of creation that binds us with the others, all playing the end game of a beautiful planet that's made us want to name each thing and try to tell its story against the vanishing. Jewish friends, neighbors, and fellow congregants are telling a powerful story this week. A different sort of story against the vanishing, the story of Passover. It is a story of liberation. It is a story of freedom. It is a story of holding a vision and holding to it despite many trials and tribulations. Passover is about the liberation of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And today we'll also be exploring the next part of that story, their journey to the promised land. Moses is an Israelite by heritage who was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He is a very imperfect hero. He is a man who commits murder, he has a fear of public speaking, and he is full of doubt. And yet, as the story goes, he is the one chosen to confront the powers and principalities of his day and lead a people to freedom. The angel of the Lord speaks to Moses through a burning bush, calling on him to lead his people to freedom in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is unsure of this call. Why would the Israelites follow him? God gives him the power to work a series of minor miracles that convince his people that his leadership is mandated by God. Moses then confronts Pharaoh and demands that the Israelites be allowed to go into the wilderness for a few days for a religious observance. The text says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So then God sends a series of plagues to soften it. The Nile River turns to blood, the country is swarmed with frogs, then gnats, then flies. The Egyptians' livestock dies, and still God keeps Pharaoh's heart hard. The Bible tells us that God does this in part to have a chance to show off God's power, which for me raises all sorts of questions about who this God is. But that is the story. So then all of the people and the remaining animals are struck with festering boils. And next is the most thunder and hail that anyone has ever experienced. And then locusts devour all surviving plants and cover the ground. Then there is total darkness for three days. And still God keeps Pharaoh's heart hard. The final plague is the death of the firstborn child of every family and every animal in the land of Egypt. 
which you'd think there wouldn't be anything still alive, but apparently there is. And the Israelite families are given instructions to slaughter a lamb and smear its blood on their doorframe. That action means that these deaths pass over them and their children do not die. And from this Passover is where we get our name for this holiday in English. Finally, God allows Pharaoh's heart to soften and Pharaoh allows the Israelites to go to the wilderness for a few days for their ritual. And so they leave, following their prophet into an unknown land, an unknown future that they will they hope will be better than the suffering they know. They leave rapidly, leaving no time for their bread dough to rise, which is why eating unleavened bread is part of the Passover observance. And of course, they aren't just going for a few days. They are leaving Egypt forever. And when Pharaoh realizes this, he sends armies in pursuit. The Israelites approach the Red Sea and it parts before them. The Egyptian pursuers drown when that path through the sea closes again. The text tells us that God is with them in a pillar of clouds before them every day and a pillar of fire before them every night. God is with them providing sweet water for them to drink in the midst of a desert. God is with them providing quails and manna for them to eat. According to the biblical story, manna is bread from heaven, a flaky substance that appeared on the ground every morning like dew. It looks like coriander seed and tastes like wafers made of honey. The Israelites are instructed only to gather as much as they need for that day, and on the sixth day to gather as much as they need for two days. And any manna that they try to store beyond that becomes full of worms. Despite all this, despite all of these signs and signals, the story tells us that the Israelites don't always have faith. They don't feel secure that the future will be better than the past. There are regular murmurings among the people that they should return to Egypt. There are regular murmurings that Moses is leading them into the desert to die. The people doubt and worry that they have made the wrong choice. Their leaders try to reassure them, but these doubts keep reemerging. And the truth is that this Exodus generation all die in the wilderness. They were right to be worried. They die in between slavery and liberation. None of them live to see the promised land. Moses himself dies just on the edge of the promised land. The Israelites of the Exodus seek a freedom that they never enjoy, but they do pass liberation on to their children. It is the next generation who make their home in the promised land. And now members of the Jewish community tell this story of liberation year after year. They tell this story against the vanishing. They tell the story to remember an ancient captivity and inspire modern hospitality. The Bible reminds those who trace their heritage to this story, you shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The Jewish community tells this story, but it is not only their story. This story resonates in many communities seeking liberation. 
We had a, our reading this morning from Desmond Tutu, a leader of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. And this story also resonates among the people who are enslaved on this continent. The Passover story is a powerful story and likely at least a partially true story. The scholars who study biblical texts and the history of the ancient Near East think that elements of this Passover story likely happened. There probably was a Moses. There probably was a group of Israelites enslaved in Egypt that he led to freedom, or at least who lived in Egypt that he led into the land of Israel. And that group was probably pretty small. There probably weren't plagues, at least in any way the text describes, and the Red Sea didn't part in two, but the scholars whose calling it is to tease out the fact from the myth in the Bible believe this story is rooted in some figment of truth. This year, the first day of Passover fell on Earth Day. And these two holidays make for a powerful conversation. How might this ancient story of liberation call us forward to take bold action, to make our promised land real in this world? How might the faith and doubt of the ancient Israelites speak to us today? Now, we can only take these analogies so far. Our current environmental situation is not slavery. But Earth Day is a chance to assess how we as a species are doing as stewards of our precious planet. The news, as you know, is not great. Climate change feels like a huge, unstoppable force with so many impacts, from melting polar zones to bleached coral reefs to the spread of the Zika virus. I know we have some in this congregation who are devoting their lives to preventing further climate change. Perhaps you are among them. I admit that when I think about climate change, I'm filled with despair. It freezes me in inaction. Perhaps you're like me. And that's just one part of the environmental challenges we face. There's the environmental racism so clearly displayed in the Flint water crisis. There's the continued loss of habitat for wild animals. There are the whole islands of plastic floating in our oceans. There are so many ways we have damaged our precious planet. As Spider-Man's Uncle Ben reminds us, with great power comes great responsibility. We clearly have great power as a species, and now is the time for great responsibility. And the Israelites in the ancient story might show us a way forward. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, they had only enough. The Israelites left Egypt with unleavened bread and ate manna and quails for 40 straight years during their journey. Their manna could not be hoarded. People could only gather up just enough every morning. And how might this part of the ancient story speak to us? How might we live with just enough? Just enough goes against everything that our consumer culture teaches us. We've been taught that joy comes through consumption. And sometimes that is true, but it is not lasting joy. It's a joy that is eventually filled with worms. 
And we have been taught that consumption keeps us safe, that we should have backups of everything and backups of our backups. But that's not the deepest lasting safety. That safety turns into worms. To face the looming environmental crisis or crises, our way of living might need to be radically different than it is now. I don't know exactly what this looks like, and I hope you will help me see that vision. What does it look like to live with just enough, to limit our consumption so others too might have just enough? We must see this vision all the while recognizing that turning to any sort of voluntary simplicity is in part a choice rooted in privilege. For so many, simplicity cannot be voluntary. It is just how life is. The Israelites of the ancient story also speak to us as we mark Earth Day about commitment and care for the generations to come. The biblical account says that no one who left Egypt lived to enter the promised land. The generation of Moses all died still wandering in the wilderness in that in-between space between slavery and liberation. We too must act for the generations to come, for our children. There is no such thing as other people's children. Whether we are actively raising children or not, all children are ours, and we are entrusted to give them a world worth living in. There are some children using the legal system to remind us of our obligation to them. 21 young people, ranging in age from 8 to 19, have sued the federal government, arguing that our government's failure to stop climate change has threatened their constitutional right to life, liberty, and property. They are organized by Our Children's Trust, an advocacy organization. The children involved in the suit are deeply worried about their future. A boy raised on a farm fears that the property his his family has farmed for generations will stop being productive because of ongoing droughts. A girl speaks of her passion for snow leopards and her fear that their habitat and then they will vanish. Huitzacatl Toniatu, a 15-year-old from Colorado who's part of this suit, says, we have filed this lawsuit because the leaders we have elected to take care of our planet and to take care of our country for our generations and those to follow are failing to do their job. My generation is going to be inheriting the crisis we see all around us today. We are standing up not only for the environment and the earth and the atmosphere, but for the right we have to live in a healthy, just, and sustainable world. We are the generation that gets to rewrite history. The pen is in our hands, and we are rewriting history today, he concludes. We do not yet know how this history they are writing will end. The suit was filed last August, and it looks like it will go to trial. A recent effort to have it dismissed was unsuccessful. Regardless of the legal case, we must hear the voices of the rising generations. We must do what we can to help them have a livable world. There is a Greek proverb, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shades they know they will never sit in. May we grow great. 
The Israelites envisioned a better world, an uncertain future better than the suffering they knew. They doubted and complained and wondered if they should return to slavery in Egypt, but they ultimately headed forward toward their promised land. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, and the other leaders held a vision that they shared with their people. They envisioned a land of milk and honey, a society built on moral principles. The ancient story calls on us to hold a positive vision of our future. What do you think the world will look like in 40 years? This is a surprisingly hard question for most of us to answer. A trio of political scientists have surveyed how people think about the future. When asked to think about the future, most people think about 15 years ahead. And the researchers then asked the survey participants to imagine the future 20 years from now, and most couldn't. The results suggest that the future goes dark for most respondents around 20 years in the future, they write. Perhaps there is good reason for this. Nearly all of the popular stories we are being told about the future right now are not futures we want to live in. They are dystopian futures. They are the Hunger Games and Divergent and Station Eleven and World War Z. They are futures marked by conflict, oppression, pandemic, and catastrophe. We need another vision, a positive vision of a promised land, a vision of a future worth working toward. And we will start to create this vision in a few minutes. Having a vision is one of the most prophetic and powerful things we can do. This is part of why the story of the Exodus is told every year in the Jewish community. As Yaakov Cohen writes, the main objective of the Seder, the first night of Passover, is to educate to freedom. This is true freedom, our ability to shape reality. We have the power to initiate, create, and change reality rather than only react and survive it. How do we educate our children to true freedom? We teach them not to look at reality as defining their acts, but to look at their acts as defining reality. That's education to freedom. It is our task to shape reality, not only to survive it. It is our task to change reality, to conform to our vision, not only to react to what is before us. Holding a vision of a land of milk and honey won't guarantee that we will reach it, but having no vision will guarantee that we will not. And our final lesson from the Israelites of the ancient story is that they knew they could not be liberated alone. The only liberation is collective liberation. Wherever we are going, whether it is the promised land flowing with milk and honey or a dystopian future, we are going there together. You read this morning that liberation is costly and it requires unity. Lily read, sing songs as you go and hold close together. You may at times grow confused and lose your way touch each other and keep telling the stories. 
We are sailing together on this blue boat home, and may we journey forward together as a people of love, of hope, of change, who will join with so many others to preserve, protect, and restore our precious planet. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.